Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast. Episode 10, A Day in the Life of Edo Japan. This week we're going to be talking about cultural developments during the Edo period. I figured it would be important to bring this up, since so much of what we think of as traditional Japanese culture dates back to the Edo period. Now, I struggled a bit with how I wanted to write this podcast, and I ended up deciding to steal an idea from the supremely excellent History of Rome podcast, which I highly recommend you take a look at, by the way. It's very, very good. One of the things that the author of that podcast, a guy named Michael Duncan, did that I really liked was an episode on a day in the life of your average Roman during the height of the Roman Empire. I thought it was a really good way to sort of introduce the social structure of the period to people, and I figured, you know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, so why not just borrow the idea? So, with thanks to him, let's get started. First and foremost, before we get into anything else, it's important to note that everything in this episode applies to maybe 20% of the population. The remaining 80% of Edo Japan's population, peasants and Barakumin both, lived in the outskirts of the big cities or in the countryside, and their day-to-day lives consisted of, well, work. Peasants farmed, Barakumin performed menial labor, and that was really the sum total of most of their days. Wealthier peasants might spend some time on a side occupation to get some tax-free income, and their children might go to what's called a terakoya, a private academy run by a Buddhist temple, to give a sort of basic education to a non-samurai. Every once in a while, both groups would get some time off for a major festival. But for most people, most of the time, life consisted of getting up at sunrise, working until sunset, and then going to sleep to do it all over again. But that's really boring, and it's only a two-minute podcast. So, let's turn to city life. Your average Japanese living in a big city during the Edo period would be up at dawn for a light meal. Japanese cuisine during this period contained many of the components of what we think of as traditional Japanese food. Miso, a fermented bean paste, fish if you can afford it, tsukemono, which are pickled vegetables, and of course, rice. Incidentally, those of more refined taste tended to eat their rice polished or husked. In other words, they would have what we think of as white rice. The polishing process and the removal of the husk takes away a lot of the nutrient value of the rice, and this meant that vitamin deficiencies were actually extremely common among the upper class. For example, we can talk about the only time that I'm aware of in history where white rice successfully brought down a government. The second-to-last Tokugawa shogun, Tokugawa Iemochi, was a deeply devout Buddhist who attempted to subside on an extremely meager diet consisting primarily of white rice. The resulting vitamin deficiency he personally blamed on insufficient piety, the remedy for which was further abstention from worldly pleasures, fasting, and when eating could not be avoided, eating more polished white rice. As a result, Iemochi died at the tender age of 20, from heart failure induced by beriberi, a disease caused by a deficiency of vitamins. Iemochi's death collapsed a diplomatic attempt to sustain the Tokugawa Bakufu, and the sort of political shuffle in the wake of his death killed the last real hope for the survival of the Tokugawa system. This is, in fact, the only case that I know of where food preferences sparked a major governmental change, 
and it is but one of the many reasons that we now enrich our white rice. Sushi also dates from this period. The first sushi was sold as a hand roll called a temaki, which was essentially rice and fish wrapped in seaweed. As one might suspect of food that you carried and ate in your hand, it was considered kind of peasanty. Sushi as we think of it today, eaten with chopsticks, is a later invention designed to give it more appeal to the more highbrow class. After the morning meal, children of the samurai class would be sent to the hankol, or domain school, which was a source of free education for all samurai children. The curriculum of a hankol concerned itself with two primary topics once you'd achieved basic literacy. The mental aspect was devoted to the mastery of the Confucian classics, usually via memorization rather than critical analysis, though that was not always true, as well as more cultured skills like calligraphy and poetry. The martial aspect focused on traditional forms of combat training, swordsmanship, archery, horsemanship, unarmed combat, spearmanship, and so on. Towards the end of the period, we also see the rise of a new kind of scholarship called mitogaku, which roughly translates as mito learning, mito being one of the domains of Tokugawa Japan, which was the source of this new educational tradition. Mitogaku was essentially a sort of Confucian form of political theory. It originally was concerned with history, but morphed into an overall discussion of how governments became legitimate or illegitimate in Japan. The final conclusion of Mitogaku is that the emperor is the source of all legitimacy because he sanctioned, at least in theory, government by the bakufu, and that as such the emperor was the highest official in the country. The bakufu, of course, did theoretically enjoy its position due to imperial favor, that favor being, of course, exacted at sword point, and as such never clamped down on Mitogaku since, hey, they're not technically wrong. But a lot of late Edo period anti-Bakufu activists were heavily influenced by the ideas of Mito thought. In addition, the intellectual tradition of Rangaku, or Dutch studies, also began to gain ground during the Edo period. Rangaku was essentially a catch-all for all Western education and knowledge. Originally, it focused primarily on things like anatomy or the physical sciences, but Eventually, its scope expanded to include things like Western military tactics or political theory. It proved extremely popular with a certain set of people, but Rangaku was generally looked down upon as an uncivilized mode of learning compared to the sort of higher calling of Confucianism. Incidentally, one thing I just have to get out there, a few decades back, a scholar at Dartmouth by the name of Noel Perrin wrote a book called Giving Up the Gun, in which he described the samurai class as intentionally abandoning the use of firearms during the Edo period in favor of more traditional weaponry. He argued that they did this in an attempt to maintain their cultural heritage as a warrior class, which was threatened by the use of firearms, since they take no training or skill to use. This argument is completely ridiculous. Samurai continued to train in the use of matchlocks during this period, and teppoljutsu, or the art of using firearms, remained a basic part of samurai education. By the end of the Edo period, there were around 200 registered gunsmiths in Japan, and you see no shortage of period prints showing samurai practicing with firearms. The simple truth is that production and improvements fell off because how much do you really need guns in a 200-year-long period of peace? Anyway, getting off of that little tangent, 
In addition to respect for the teachers, lower-ranking students, or kohai, were expected to show deference to those further along in the curriculum or more advanced in age, their senpai. This could include everything from simply speaking to the senpai more politely, and showing physical deference, uh, bowing for example, to performing menial labor on their behalf. In some cases, the senpai-kohai relationship also involved some pretty nasty hazing rituals. This could be particularly true in some of the more militant domains, for example, later on we'll talk about Saigo Takamori, a samurai from the domain of Satsuma. The domain education there was extremely militaristic, and in fact, one of the reasons Saigo Takamori ended up being more of a scholar than a swordsman, even though he vastly preferred the latter, was that he suffered an extremely severe injury during a hazing ritual as a child, and as a result his training in swordsmanship was interrupted. An adult male of the samurai class, after the morning meal, would head to his position in the domain government. All levels of the government bureaucracy were staffed by samurai, but even then there were not always enough jobs to go around. Since daimyo needed to employ all of their samurai, they would come up with some extremely inventive fixes. In one case, a samurai was employed by his master in managing the servants in charge of carrying the daimyo's umbrella. Advancement wasn't really a possibility, unless you possessed both genius and a chance to demonstrate it. For example, the late Edo period samurai Katsukaishu inherited a menial job from his father, but was reassigned to run the Bakufu Naval Academy when it became clear that he had a talent for naval affairs and that the Bakufu would need a modern navy. For most samurai, however, if your father started out with one job, you would be doing that job too, as would your children, on and on and on. Since positions were hereditary, very incompetent people were often put in charge of their more talented social inferiors. This created a lot of resentment over time. One of the chief demands of anti-Bakufu reformers who eventually brought down the Tokugawa system was in fact the implementation of a meritocracy. Adult samurai would also polish their martial skills in domain-run training grounds, but they were rarely given the chance to test them in any form of duel, since a duel between samurai required government permission, and the Bakufu was understandably not too keen on having all of its servants killing each other in the streets. One solution to this problem, which also solved the other problem of awkward training accidents, was the development of gear which allowed for non-lethal sparring in particular the development of bamboo swords and leather and bamboo armor. This system of non-lethal sparring allowed for inter-domain competitions of swordsmanship and spearmanship, though they angered some who felt the practice strayed too far from the true practice of swordsmanship. In fact, one samurai was so insulted by his domain's decision to institute this practice that he walked out of the domain school and threatened to start his own. Meanwhile, a male townsman of the artisan or merchant class would, after the morning meal, make his way to his place of business and open it up. Most businesses were small affairs passed down among family members specializing in a single commodity, so children and relatives would be involved in the family business as well. Some businesses, however, could get very large if they were successful. For example, in the early 1600s, a merchant named Mitsui Takatoshi set up a miso shop in Mie Prefecture, south of Nagoya. He did extremely well for himself, set up another shop in Edo, and eventually diversified into a few other areas. 
The Mitsui family took up banking during the late Edo period, and navigated both the collapse of the Tokugawa and World War II rather well. In fact, the Mitsui group is still around, and it's one of the largest economic conglomerates on the planet. Of course, the example of Mitsui is far from typical, but it gives you an idea of the scale some of these businesses could reach. Like I said, these were mostly family businesses, and as such they were passed from father to son. However, if the head of the business had an incompetent heir, or failed to produce one, they could turn to another method of sustaining the family line. Adoption. Incidentally, adoption was also common in the samurai class as a way of sustaining lines that had no male heir. Someone of any age could be adopted into the family line, which usually involved changing their name and, if possible, marrying them to the daughter of the family head. There wasn't any stigma against this, and the adopted son was treated the same as a full family member. For example, the will of one head of the Mitsui family reads, quote, Although the eldest son is to succeed his family in principle, if his conduct causes harm to the family, he shall be expelled even if he is the only son, and an adopted successor from among the other members of the house shall be chosen. Incidentally, there are a few other gems in that will, too. Here are a few examples. Quote, Persons in public office, in other words, samurai, are not, as a rule, prosperous. This is because they concentrate on discharging their public duties and neglect their own family affairs. Do not forget that you are a merchant. It is a great mistake to cast aside the family business and consider government service as a first duty. Another line reads, quote, To believe in the gods and Buddha and follow the teachings of Confucianism are the duties of a man. Nevertheless, it is not good to go to extremes. Extremists in religion will never be successful merchants. Good advice, if somewhat morally troubling. After completing their daily tasks, adult samurai and merchants both could look forward to the nightlife of an Edo city, which usually involved the theater. Kabuki was the predominant form of Edo period theater, developed by a Kyoto woman named Izumo no Okuni, who may in fact have been a shrine maiden at a Shinto shrine. It rapidly spread in popularity due to the fact that, frankly, it was a lot more fast-paced and over-the-top than competing theater forms, especially no. It probably didn't hurt that the casts were also predominantly female, the themes heavily sexual, and the performers available as prostitutes. Eventually, the shogunate, worried about the degenerative effect of such ribald entertainment, banned women's kabuki. In order to keep the form alive, men were substituted into all of the roles, a practice which continues to this day. Actors would specialize in specific types of roles. Younger men tended to be cast as onnagata, or actors specializing in female parts. Very attractive actors were slotted into the leading role of wakashu. However, in Japan there's no real cultural bias against homosexual activity although the concept of a long-term homosexual partnership was somewhat non-existent. We'll get more into that in a different episode. So it's not like that really stopped the issue of prostitution. In fact, prostitution, with actors available both to men and women, continued throughout the Edo period. In several memorable instances, fights actually broke out over who got to solicit whom. This caused the shogunate to briefly ban all wakashu and onagata actors from working, but it was forced to rescind this ban due to popular pressure in less than a year. 
Kabuki is still performed today. There are more specialized tours for Westerners, which include translations of the lines, and it's far more active and engaging than Noel. The pace is much faster, and the lack of masks allows the actor to actually facially emote. The overall style is also far more colorful. I'll post some modern pictures so you can see what I mean. The theater is also structured to allow the audience to be more involved in the action. There's a sort of runway called the Hanamichi, which runs perpendicular to the stage and allows actors to get right into the crowd. The best-known theaters were the Kabukiza in Edo and the Minamiza in Kyoto, both of which are still around. If you've got the money for the pricey tickets and the interest, it's definitely worth a view. Incidentally, like merchant enterprises or samurai positions, status as a kabuki actor is inherited. A son would take his father's place, specialize in the same roles, and usually change his name to match his father's upon beginning his career. Adoption was, yet again, a common practice to continue the family line if there was no readily available heir. For example, from 1660 to 2013, there have been 12 men to head the house of Ichikawa and take the name of Ichikawa Danjuro. Number 12, who was an adoptee, actually died of pneumonia this February. The family even has a line of 18 plays which act as their specialties. The new head of the family is actually causing something of a scandal in the kabuki world right now, because he's not planning to take his father's name. In addition to kabuki, bunraku, or puppet theater, was another common form of entertainment. It originally developed in Osaka, but spread rapidly throughout the country. It involves manipulation of extremely elaborate puppets by a team of handlers dressed in black. Meanwhile, a single chanter performs the lines for each character in a different voice, also matching his facial expressions to the emotions of the character. There's also musical accompaniment using the shakuhachi, or flute, the shamisen, which is a type of lute, the koto, a type of harp, and the taiko, which are drums. The dolls are spectacular to watch. I've seen a live performance, and they're really very impressive. I'll see if I can find a good YouTube video of one, so you can get a feel for how it looks. These puppets can be called on to do some pretty impressive things. For example, the Bunraku version of Chu Shingura, the stage adaptation of the 47 Ronin, which incidentally you can believe is going to get its own episode, involves one of the puppets disemboweling himself and signing a letter with his own guts. I have no idea how they manage this, but I imagine it's quite a sight. Samurai were prohibited both from bunraku and kabuki on the grounds that they promoted immoral behavior and corrupted one's character, particularly kabuki, what with the whole prostitution thing. There were also injunctions against gambling because of the associated worries of debt and against excessive drunkenness leading to dereliction of duty. Of course, the very fact that the government was constantly publishing edicts against prostitution or gambling or excessive drunkenness makes one suspect that they enjoyed substantial unofficial popularity, and the numbers back it up. One modern study, using records of around 5,000 samurai families, revealed that, of that number, one in every ten families had received a status demotion, and in around 50 of those cases, the head of the household was banished, executed, or forced to commit suicide for, quote, excessive drinking, flagrant immorality, or ruinous debt. Speaking of flagrant immorality... Non-kabuki-related prostitution was also quite prominent in Edo, Japan. The government officially disapproved of it for aforementioned reasons of immorality, 
but for reasons that I'm sure had nothing to do with the government being run entirely by men, did not ban it. Instead, prostitution was confined to specific districts called yukaku, literally pleasure districts, one example being the Yoshiwara district of Edo, which was a little bit north of the modern neighborhood of Asakusa. The yukaku followed strict rules regarding public conduct, regulation, licensing, and, of course, taxation. Yukaku tended to have multiple forms of entertainment on hand. Kabuki shows, for obvious reasons, were quite popular there. There were also other forms of entertainment, such as an early form of Japanese stand-up called Rakugo. Incidentally, one of the foundational figures of Rakugo was a Pure Land Buddhist monk named Anrakuan Sakuden, who was a devotee of the tea ceremony as well. I really want to find out more about this guy, though I wasn't able to find much, because I can only imagine what a comedian Buddhist monk who practices the tea ceremony in his spare time would be like. Life for prostitutes could be exceptionally unpleasant. Most were indentured servants sold as young girls to brothel keepers by their parents in order to pay off debts. They would have a contractual obligation to work a standard period of years, six seems to have been about the norm, but those contracts could be bought off earlier by a specific patron, or the girl herself if she was successful. There were many grades of prostitute based on their abilities. Extremely expensive ones could, with regular visitation, even put a major daimyo fairly steeply into debt. Then, of course, there were the geisha. The term literally means persons of art and refers to an escort in the literal sense. Geisha were essentially trained companions, who you hired to be incredibly charming, witty, and cultured, if you're into that sort of thing. Technically speaking, geisha were not prostitutes owing to the separate laws applying to their trade. That said, a particularly wealthy customer who made frequent visits and paid very well could just find himself getting lucky, so to speak. Much like prostitutes, geisha were indentured at a young age and worked to pay off their contracts, even though the duration of that contract tended to be much longer because of the increased training overhead. After all, there's a bit more to, say, learning how to play the koto extremely well than there is to, well, since I marked this podcast as clean, let's not go too far into that. Geisha are still around to this day, though the number of them is fastly dwindling. It's not really the kind of job your average modern Japanese girl tends to go for. Yukaku were considered extremely glamorous. The inhabitants were sometimes referred to as living in the ukiyo, or floating world, the idea being that it was a place divorced from the regular workaday world. Depictions of life in these quarters, particularly the Yoshiwara in Edo, became known as ukiyo-e, or pictures of the floating world, a genre which eventually broadened out to include depictions of theatrical performances, historical events, and other such entertainment, and became the main genre of woodblock printing in Japan. In addition, extremely pornographic ukiyo-e prints called shunga, or spring images, were sold quite openly during this period. I'm not going to get too much into the morality of this, but suffice it to say that there wasn't really any sort of public injunction against discussion of sex or the depiction of sexual imagery, as there is in Western culture. This will change with the arrival of Western culture in Meiji Japan, but we're not quite there yet. After a night of partying at his venue of choice, your average townsman would wander his way home, but would have to be very careful for two reasons. First, Japanese towns were designed in a very ad hoc way. After the attempt to build Kyoto on the Chinese square grid model, people just kind of gave up on the idea, 
and city layouts basically just sprung up at random. Even after the post-war rebuilding of Japan, it's still like that. I can speak from experience when I say that finding one's way across a neighborhood in Tokyo, where most of the streets don't have names, and usually the buildings aren't numbered, is an adventure worthy of epic poetry. The streets could also be full of armed gangs called kabukimomo. The term literally means deviant. It's a different kabuki from the theatrical one, which means skilled at song and dance. Kabukimono were usually ronin, or masterless warriors, formed into gangs, who would harass passers-by. The government eventually cracked down on them, but over time they were replaced by the more organized predecessors of the modern Yakuza, or organized crime syndicates. City police did exist. Like all civil service positions, they were staffed by samurai. However, they tended to concern themselves with post-facto law enforcement rather than preventative measures like patrols. There were also neighborhood watch groups, individual neighborhoods would be treated as a collective much like a peasant village, and would manage themselves through neighborhood organizations that sent out nightly patrols. Of course, there are those who suggest that the modern Yakuza group at least partially out of these neighborhood patrol groups, so that may not have been as comforting as it sounds. Eventually, you'd make it home again, ready to call it night, and do it all again tomorrow. That's all for this week. Next week... Well, I'm actually not quite sure, which brings me to a short programming note. I've been thinking a bit about how I structured this podcast, starting with the sort of background and explanation episodes, with the promise of eventually arriving at more thematic episodes that explore individual things I find very interesting. In fact, I'm really not very happy with some of the background episodes. A lot of them come off as very lectury to me, and they sound like I'm just giving a lecture to a bunch of freshmen. Now, personally, I think it would be a bit better to do something more entertaining, so I've been considering switching early to the thematic episodes. That is to say, from this point onward, just going on to topics that I find interesting and providing as much background as I think you will need to understand it. I really want to know what you guys think about this idea. Would it be helpful? Would it be interesting? Do you need more background episodes to get a feel for the overall course of Japanese history before we start moving into very detailed specifics? I'd really like your feedback on this. Please visit the podcast website at www.historyofjapanpodcast.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast and let me know what you think about the idea. Do you want more background episodes? Or do you think you'd rather just move on to more focused stories told in a bit more depth? Please let me know. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>